topic of the our Dhamma talk this evening is the ten imperfections of insight. And this topic then connects with our series of Dhamma talks given so far on the controlling faculties. Now, before going into those ten imperfections of insight as an aspect of wisdom as directly experienced by a retreatant, allow me to state just a few more points with regard to those controlling faculties. Some general points. Now, you will remember that when weak or by weakening and abandoning ignorance, intuitive wisdom gets developed. By developing intuitive wisdom, we then abandon ignorance. Now, Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi, in his explanations with regard to you know, the controlling you know, faculties, mentions uh, that uh, um, according to several discourses from the 48th collection of discourses, discourse 2 to 5, that a stream enter is defined as one who has understood the faculties, whereas the Arahant is one who has acquired this knowledge, has developed it to the point where his or her mind has been freed from clinging. Success in life, success in the spiritual practice will depend on the controlling faculties as one factor, and in particular, the strength of those faculties. So, the strength of the controlling faculties in one who has not yet realized the path of stream entry, that strength will be weaker than um, in a person who has already uh, gained the path of stream entry. Now, a person who has already gained the path of stream entry, in that, you know, the strength of his or her controlling faculties in comparison to someone who has realized uh, the next noble path, namely that of one's return, so uh, that strength will be weaker. And then you know, the same goes for the other cases. The more one practices, the more profound one's attainment or realization of the Dhamma, the stronger the mind becomes. Now, the 43rd discourse of the 48th collection of discourses on the controlling faculties clearly states the potential of those controlling faculties and their development. So in the end, when developing the five controlling faculties, they, to a very high degree, they have the potential to lead a person all the way to the destruction of the taints. So in other words, they have the potential to lead a person to arahanship. 
So that's certainly not little. Among the five controlling faculties, the wisdom faculty has been expressed as being the chief among the states conducive to enlightenment. And so, in the Vipassana practice or insight practice, the most vital factor is certainly indeed this intuitive wisdom. Now, it is wisdom that stabilizes the other faculties. The more wisdom arises, the more it will have an impact on the mind and influence the other uh, controlling faculties and the mind as a whole. Now, there are many aspects to this intuitive wisdom that occur in the course of Vipassana meditation practice. Now, there's a certain phase in the practice where retreatants are likely to experience predominant physical and mental formations as being in a constant state of flux. So within one single pain, experience of pain, one might suddenly then discover that there are so many changes taking place. So pain that early on was experienced as pretty solid, pretty compact, just a pain, now presents itself to the mind in a quite different way. Now, a retreatant who was had a direct experience or direct understanding of this impermanent, transitory nature of formations is likely then to experience formations in a different way, namely as unsatisfactory. The very fact that formations keep changing all the time and the mind is more interested in stability that uh, then is experienced, is perceived as unsatisfactory. Now obviously formations are, or at least certain formations are unsatisfactory just because of their nature. So clearly a pain is unsatisfactory, and so on. Now, it is during this certain particular phase of Fatna once insight meditation practice, that retreatants are likely to experience a predominance of rather unwholesome, challenging mental states. First and foremost among those are the five hindrances. So the hindrance of sense desire, hindrance of ill will, hindrance of sloth and torpor, hindrance of restlessness and remorse, and the hindrance of skeptical doubt. Now, 
when the mind is attacked by these different hindrances, obviously this is not a very pleasant experience. However, there some learning can take place. Namely, when one, one's practice then deepens and one gains some understanding in the anatta nature of formations, namely that form, conditioned formations ultimately lack a self. And that those conditioned formations are not identical with the self. Now, during that sudden phase, retreatants tend to uh, get a first understanding, a first taste of what is meant by anatta. And that, practically speaking, is suddenly then con- or, 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 connected with the arising of a number of primarily or predominantly wholesome mental states. Among those, we have mental states such as calmness, such as happiness, faith, and so on. Now, there are more to those. Now, when one comes to experience certain these wholesome states, which Shatner then technically are being referred to as imperfections of Shatner insight, then there is an opportunity to contrast those wholesome states with the earlier unwholesome ones. And with that, then, the, trend, uh, the, uh, the difference between unwholesome states experienced earlier on and now the predominantly wholesome states, that becomes very clear. And also, what becomes clear is this transition from first unwholesome states to later on wholesome states. So it is in this way that as retreatants we learn something. The mind learns something. Now, Wholesomeness has been defined by the Atta Salini, which is the commentary to the Dhamma Sangani, has defined wholesomeness in the following way, namely as wholesomeness has faultless happy results as its characteristic. So the results are then on the positive side. Now, in the case of the function or the essential property of wholesomeness, the Atasalini then explains that its essential property or function is the destruction of unwholesomeness. The manifestation then follows certainly from the earlier two aspects, namely it comes in the form of purity of the mind or within the mind. And the factor that most determines the purity or impurity of the mind, whether the mind is on the wholesome side or the unwholesome side, that is uh, manasikara. When that manasikara, meaning attention, when that attention is wholesome, then purity is likely to arise in the mind. When yeah, the attention is uh, unwise attention, ayoniso manasikara, then the result will come in the form of impurity. Now, in the case of unwholesomeness, 
Akusala, this Satna the Antatna, the commentator of the uh, Dhammasangani, namely Buddha Gosa, uh, defines as follows unwholesomeness, as faultiness, and bad results as its characteristic. And the essential property or function of unwholesomeness is as opposition to wholesomeness. Or, as a second um, function, we have production of harm, of misfortune. Akusala, unwholesomeness, is said to manifest as turbidity of the mind, obscurity of the mind, the mind being stained and the like. And the mental factor that contributes to the arising of unwholesomeness of Akusala is, as mentioned just a moment ago, Ayoniso Manasikara, namely unwise attention. Thinking that there's nothing wrong with the um, arising presence of unwholesomeness. Now, in the presence of, on occasion, wholesome states, on occasion, unwholesome states, the mind has a tendency or a pattern of wanting to hold on to the wholesome ones, which are experienced as pleasant, and certainly then of rejecting the unwholesome ones. And that certainly might happen many times within a single day. Now, this push and pull nature of the mind, if it keeps happening time and again, can be rather exhausting. Now, with deepened practice, a retreatant sooner or later gets the point that the answer does not lie in this holding on to attaching to a certain place or wholesomeness, nor rejecting unwholesomeness, but rather the answer lies in developing what? Equanimity. There you go, you follow. And certainly that taking a balanced approach is clearly the wise or intelligent thing to do. So to transcend this very reactive nature of the mind. Now, The imperfections of insight are an integral part of a retreatant's practice, mindful or insight certain practice. In Pali, they are known as dasa vipassana upakilesa. Dasa meaning ten, and satna then vipassana being insight, and satna upakilesa. That Pali term translates as obstruction or impurity or as imperfection. So, then when we combine these three Pali terms, it becomes the ten imperfections of insight. Now, there are certain difficulties that tend to arise before those imperfections of insight occur or unfold in one's meditation practice. 
One is, if one has not fully understood the aspect of anatta, and one strongly is holding on to the aspect of or the concept of a self fighting the reality, fighting the truth that ultimately there is certain formations are anatta, well, this will lead to a stagnation in one's practice. Now, when the imperfections themselves arise, some further challenges tend to occur, at least potentially. Now, before mentioning those certain dangers, allow me to state the entire group of Ten imperfections, the first one being Obasa in Pani, which translates as illumination. And then we have Jnana, the Pani term for knowledge. And then we have Piti as the third one, namely joy or rapture, followed by Basadi in Pali, which stands for tranquility or serenity, followed by happiness in Pali referred to as sukha, and based on these, then retreatants are likely to experience what? Uh, well, when <laughs> is tempted to answer like this, not quite certain yet, namely faith. Faith becomes predominant and actually becomes quite strong. Now, that certain faith in turn, as we have seen in an earlier discourse on the controlling faculty of faith, that faith then prepares the ground for a desire to practice and in particular for exertion of energy. And so the next imperfection of insight is known in the Pali scripture language as which is a strong form of energy. And that satna then leads on to the arising of rather strong mindfulness, upatana and pani, followed by equanimity, upeka. And the tenth and last of those imperfections is attachment nikanti in the Pali scriptural language. So, attachment itself is an unwholesome state. The other states, if they are free from certain dangers, potentially are wholesome or predominantly are wholesome states. Now, let us go through these imperfections one by one. Some have been dealt with already in earlier talks. In the case of illumination, so a retreatant sits there and then with eyes suddenly closed, a retreatant might have an experience of you know, strong lights um, occurring or presence of a strong light within the mind. Or it could be that a retreatant feels as if there is someone in front of his sudden face shining a torch right into the center of the face. So some strong light then uh, reaching the face. Or a retreated might experience uh, certain uh, sparkling uh, light formations. Now, 
when these kind of uh, illumination related phenomena occur, they come in many you know, different uh, forms. An uninformed retreatant is likely to do what? Get attached to them. Grasp them. Yes, that is correct. Grasp them or develop a craving for them. So the way it happens is the attachment certainly part is the experience is taking place and certainly the mind is then attaching to it. Now, if one had one session with strong illumination experiences, and maybe this has happened for you know, the first time, and then it's quite possible that certainly at the beginning of the next session, the mind will go, oh, it would be so nice if I could get you know, those uh, illumination phenomena back. It would be nice to have some entertainment. So that's craving in action. So if you notice that happening, then just take the craving itself, the mind that is wishing for a repeat of the earlier experience, take that as an object, label the craving as such, observe it in a non non well a non-reactive manner and know its nature. Now, great attachment and craving are not certainly the only dangers. It could potentially be that one has these wonderful illumination experiences and you know, then in the absence of mindfulness and wise attention, then uh, pride and conceit comes in. And the retreat and certain things of himself or herself as having all these fabulous experiences and then starting to compare. Comparing oneself with other retreatants, comparing oneself in a favorable way, thinking that my practice is better than other people's practice. Now, this could potentially culminate in thoughts such as, wow, my practice is far out. Probably the teacher has never experienced this. Now, that might be taking things a bit too far. Now, a terribly uninformed Satna retreatant who's maybe on occasion heard about enlightenment, and then there's the term light in, or the word light in there, might uh, come to the early and premature conclusion. Well, you know, the very you know, arising of you know, these illumination phenomena must be you know, the case of enlightenment. So you know, the Dhamma has been gained, and now it's time to pack and go back home. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Now, would that be a correct conclusion? <laughs> uh, most likely not. Now, this is not a case that is totally impossible. This has happened on occasion. The Venerable Saito Pandita Mbiwamsa has a wonderful story to share in this regard, but we don't have the time for it. <laughs> you will have to listen to his talks. Now, taking illumination phenomena to be an experience of enlightenment then is or boils down to a unwholesome mental state, namely that of wrong view, mecha deity in the Pali scriptural language. 
So an uninformed retreatant potentially can be assailed by you know, these certain aspects, namely getting attached to you know, the experience of illumination you know, or craving for you know, similar you know, experience or more of you know, the same or the arising of pride and conceit and then mm, uh, holding a, a wrong view. In each case, the illumination itself you know, then arises in connection with an unwholesome mental state and and in this condition in under these circumstances it certainly is then appropriate to speak of an imperfection of insight now a skilled retreatant whose experience illumination phenomena during earlier retreats and uh, uh, is no longer impressed Satna, by you know, these certain phenomena will simply remember to be mindful so will remember to label you know, the experiences to observe them uh, mindfully and uh, to know their nature and then they will pass now Retreatants are further likely to, or on occasion at least, likely to experience quite a number of Dhamma reflections. So, some understanding, reflective understanding about the nature of the Dhamma might suddenly come up. And, or one might certainly see certain objects in a, in a very clear kind manner. Now, this too may, this knowledge, this keen and unerring knowledge, may then be accompanied by one or the other dangers as mentioned earlier on. So one might get attached to this keen and unerring knowledge. One might crave for more of this or repetition of the same then pride and conceit might occur and wrong view might occur. The Visuddhimagga defines this knowledge as knowledge due to insight and as one is estimating and judging material and immaterial states, perhaps knowledge that is unerring, keen, incisive and very sharp arises in a retreatant, like a lightning flash. Now, having seen the nature of this keen and unerring knowledge and not falling prey to pride and conceit or craving pride and conceit and wrong view, one's practice is likely to mature further. When this is certainly the case, then joy is likely to arise next. And that certain joy is certainly experienced in different certain ways, namely as a mind that is certainly full of enthusiasm, excitement, maybe elation is there, interest is there, maybe even euphoria or exuberance. A retreatant might certainly notice how, uh, might understand the characteristic of footnote joy, namely as uh, being endearing. 
So the person in whom joy arises in the mind tends to be endearing to others. Now, joy, when present in the mind, has a tendency to refresh the body and the mind or to pervade it with thrills and certain chills. It is manifested as certain elation. The Vendorosadu Pandita Bhivams of Burma speaks in terms of Fatna joy as possessing a bubbly energy. And that Satna then is very distinctive. And we will see that later on in comparison to Nisukha where the difference is. Now, that joy, as Satna the text Satna explained, can be of different grades. So it could be a momentary joy, Kanika, Piti, and Satna then other, Upeka Piti would be another form of it. Upeka Piti is your uplifting joy, which may should be could be understood certainly literally that sometimes mm, body and mind is filled with so much shatna joy yeah, that uh, um, the, the body literally jumps off uh, the cushion. Now, if one is certainly not careful, one might certainly get attached to you know, these experiences of you know, joy or you know, one might crave for it you know, more of them develop bright and conceit or you know, take you know, these experiences to be experiences of Nibbana or enlightenment. Now if any one of those Satna dangers comes in then it will typically lead to at least a stagnation of one's practice. And in the worst case, it could lead to a temporary dip or drop in one's practice. So one does have to be careful not to get attached, not to crave for these experiences. Now, the reason that could be cited for the arising of Fatna joy is very simple. Namely, earlier on a retreatant would certainly typically experience, and as outlined earlier on, would typically experience a number of pains and aches as well as difficult challenging mental factors the hindrances and once certainly those have been overcome through further practice well then naturally joy arises so in the absence of those certain challenging formations bt comes up Now, around Sapna Joy, it's useful, or it might be useful to know that the joy also manifests as interest, and if on occasion one's sedimentation practice, the opposite state is prevalent, namely boredom, one has observed formations already so many you know, times and certainly seen it all as one believes, you know, then boredom you know, is likely to set in. And in a situation like this, you know, then it would be wise to take the boredom itself as an object, plus you know, then to you know, go on you know, to observe the most predominant object with a particular interest in just some aspect that so far has not yet been explored yet. And 
when when they observes with interest very soon the boredom will be gone The joy over time gradually becomes more and more refined, and suddenly it will then prepare the ground for the arising of the next imperfection of insight, which is uh, tranquility, basadi in the Pali scriptural language. And this basadi, one typically is referred to as a state of being serene, a state of calmness, a state of peacefulness, of stillness, of of quietness, of repose, of non-agitation. Now that then is very different from the ordinary state of mind, namely that restless and agitated mind. Now, when the tranquility arises, this can be a rather rich and rewarding experience. So naturally, the mind will want to attach to it or will want to crave for more of the same. And if this happens, then the attachment, the craving, potentially the pride and conceit, as well as the wrong view, will then lead to a stagnation in one's practice, or even a drop in one's practice. So the thing to do is, when tranquility comes up, to simply label it for what it is, observe it in an objective manner without getting attached to it, and then to know its nature. And by and carefully observing tranquility, then gradually it will subside and the practice will move on. Just like so many other factors, tranquility doesn't arise out of the blue, but rather is part of a longer sequence of mental, of various mental formations. So it all starts with the disciplining of the mind, and that discipline then is for the purpose of restraint. The restraint in turn then is for the purpose of non-remorse. The non-remorse is in turn for the purpose of gladdening. And gladness, pamuja, is a weak form of joy. That gladdening is for the purpose of joy. The joy is for the purpose of tranquility. That tranquility is for the purpose of happiness. The happiness is for the purpose of concentration. That, in turn, is for the purpose of correct knowledge and vision. And that sapna then leads on to correct, uh, um, or is uh, for that correct knowledge and vision is for the purpose of dispassion, and the dispassion finally is uh, or leads to fading away of greed and other uh, unwholesome states. The way tranquility manifests according to the Visuddhimagga is as peacefulness and coolness. 
it's certainly characteristic it's given us the quieting down of disturbances dharata in Pali in uh, the mental body and uh, the consciousness and its function is to crush uh, you know, such kind of uh, you know, disturbances now the mental body and certain consciousness are said you know, to be the proximate cause now, from a retreatant's point of view, how might one experience this tranquility? A retreatant might certainly say, my entire body felt very peaceful and tranquil. Or uh, a retreatant certainly might experience this peaceful and tranquil state and then being so overwhelmed by it our retreatant might even forget to note or label the predominant objects. <coughs> At times in standing or walking meditation when deep calmness, tranquility is prevalent in the mind, one might find oneself staring at some object for an extended period of time. Could be a flower or something else. Now, when tranquility is present, the mind is not likely to be overwhelmed by thinking nor by wandering, at least for those moments. There's further an absence of movement in the mind. And with this also an absence of agitation in the mind. Now, recognizing this imperfection of insight, namely tranquility, has or can have certain advantages, namely that one might want to look for other wholesome mental states that tend to be associated or that tend to arise in association with tranquility. Can you think of some? When tranquility is present, which other wholesome states are likely to occur in the mind? What's that? Contentment. Contentment. Um, well, yes, that's likely to occur. Calmness. Calmness. Yeah, well, calmness itself is the same as certain tranquility. And uh, happiness, certainly, that's close to the contentment. Peacefulness. Peacefulness. Well, that's still an aspect of tranquility. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what would you say? Typically, at that point, is the mind more on, a, on the heavy side or more on the light side? Light. On the light side. There you go. And lightness is... Um, a mental factor itself, the Pali word for it is lahuta, and it's actually a wholesome mental factor. So this lightness of, of consciousness as well as lightness of the body of mental, mental, um, mental states. So retreatant might notice once tranquility has arisen, that at that certain, at such a point, the mind is free from fatigue, from heaviness, from rigidity, unwieldiness, sickness, or crookedness. But rather, the mental body and the mind are tranquilized. So that's your tranquility, light. Lahuni, in Pali, malleable, muduni, wieldy, kamanyani, 
quite sharp and straight. So there's certain qualities that satna tend to accompany that satna state of tranquility. So next time tranquility arises as an imperfection of insight, then you might want to uh, go and explore what else is around. Now, the tranquility of Fatna the mind, again, we don't want to get attached to it, we don't certainly want to crave for it, nor become conceited because of it, nor take this experience to be an experience of Fatna realization of the Dhamma. But rather, we... Uh, just want to be mindful of Fatna, the tranquility, as it is occurring. So we want to label it, we want to observe it in a non-attached manner and know its nature. Eventually, that tranquility will subside. However, in beginning retreatants who've uh, uh, come across this uh, stronger uh, form of tranquility they might uh, they might like it so much that sitting after sitting they crave for the same experience and many days could even go by you know, spending most of the time just with or in a state of tranquility now if that is certainly the case it certainly would be high time to be vigorously mindful of the tranquility. One has observed it already many times, knows it, should know its nature by now, and certainly then to know its nature, and once again, and certainly then to let go of it, and if necessary, to then direct the mind towards back towards the rising, falling movement of the abdomen. And in this way, one certain meditation then will move ahead. Now, more remains certain to be said about the imperfections of insight. It's already slightly past seven o'clock, maybe this much for tonight. So allow me to conclude by wishing shoulds. The imperfections of insight on occasion arise in your meditation practice. May you realize their nature. May you be aware of the dangers around those imperfections of insight. May you then be warned, well warned, and then wisely stay away from the attachment, from the craving, from the conceit, as well as certain wrong view, and thus may your practice deepen further, and certainly then ultimately may your practice lead you all the way to the cessation of conditioned formations. And this is it for now. <laughs>